Hello, welcome to Leftist Labor History. My name is Nate and I'm your host. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the Gilded Age. This is a time of um, extreme inequality, as suggested by how you know I'm referring to it. Um, this is the period immediately after Reconstruction um, that is is marked by rapid societal, economic, labor change, and um, as well as a lot of unrest. So there is a lot to talk about, and uh, let's let's get into it. What is what's happening is industrial capitalism is on the rise, and this is happening with northern industries and northern money um, in the the American North. So where does this money come from? Well, a lot of it comes from the products of slavery, plantation slavery. I didn't talk about the Middle Passage much in the slavery episode, but uh, the Middle Passage was when slavers would would abduct people from the west coast of Africa, bring them to the Americas. Um, So the Middle Passage was incredibly deadly. During the whole course of it, um, between one and two million enslaved people died from disease or suicide, or they were maimed or killed by the, the slave ship crew. Some slave ships used a scheme called tight packing, which is where they would put more people on the boat than they had uh, supplies for. So they would count on a certain number of people dying on the journey across the Atlantic Ocean because that's how deadly it was. Running a, running a, a slave ship expedition is is very capital intensive, right? So... You have to have a ship, you have to have a crew. And so companies started to spring up in order to finance these slave ships. And then when you're dealing with that amount of money, you want to have insurance. And so insurance companies began to underwrite these slave voyages. A lot of these firms were and are based in New York. So Wall Street... Wall Street is named after after a wall, a physical wall that was nearby. That wall was built by enslaved African Americans. And um, a couple of blocks away from the New York Stock Exchange, people discovered that there was a mass grave, an unmarked mass grave of African Americans, um, enslaved people. So Wall Street is very nearly built directly on a mass grave of enslaved people. Um, And figuratively speaking, a lot of finance, at least in the United States, so there were financial firms in London that were also underwriting uh, the slave trade, but a lot of financial firms and insurance firms, um, some of the major banks and uh, insurance companies that are still around today, began during this era, in addition to finance. So, for example, textile mills in New England would buy cotton from plantations in the South and turn that into 
cloth. But a lot of these people, a lot of this industry in that supported quote unquote free labor, they built their fortunes basically on um, plantation slavery. But what we start to see during the Gilded Age um, is is a, a, a kind of shift in a, in the paradigm that's going to happen very rapidly. Okay, so we're going to start in 1869 for a few reasons. One is that 1869 was when the so-called Golden Spike was driven to join, uh, complete the Transcontinental Railroad joining the Central Pacific Railroad and the Union Pacific Railroad. We're going to talk about railroads. So railroads are emblematic of the kind of industry that is on the rise during this period. Um, It made a few people phenomenally wealthy. And um, it killed a lot of people. And it didn't really do much good for anybody. I'm going to get into that. Another reason I want to start in 1869 is that was the beginning of the Knights of Labor. Um, and that, so we're finally going to talk about a labor union. I'm fudging a little bit, but uh, in 1868, uh, the publication of the book edition of Ragged Dick by Horatio Alger. And this is going to be the first of, of just a, a slew of rags to riches novels that Horatio Alger is going to publish. Um, and, and these are wildly popular. He's going to sell millions and millions of copies of these stories. They're very formulaic. Um, they're all about, you know, a little street urchin and, and he works hard and, and pulls himself up by the bootstraps. Um, and this is something, so, so I mentioned that because, I'm going to get into kind of the conditions of the age and and the reactions that people had to it. One reaction is just this this wild hope that they too, you know, if I work hard and apply myself, I'm going to I'm going to hit my big break and I'm going to become, you know, extremely wealthy, right? Um so we've got, you know, labor organized and these aren't these aren't nets I'm not I'm kind of setting these up as alternatives, but these are not necessarily mutually exclusive, right? But you've got this kind of materialist, like I'm, I'm gonna, or I'm gonna join a labor union, or you've got this like fanciful uh, thinking of, I'm gonna be the next rags to riches. I'm gonna be the next, you know, Joseph Carnegie. Um. So that's kind of why I'm, I'm starting where I am. You know, I want to emphasize that these changes, these things are happening rapidly. So the Gilded Age is was coined by Mark Twain in a novel that was published in 1873. So this, I mean, this gets right underway. Um, you know, eight years after the end of the Civil War, it's, you know, that's pretty, pretty rapid change. One thing that's happening during this period is the the mode of employment for the majority of people is going to shift between 1870 and 1910 so in 40 years time you know two two generations time the number the percentage of self-employed people in the United States went from 67% to 37% 
So you have about two thirds of working people who are self-employed in 1870. And by 1910, by 1910, it's almost down to about one third. Um, and this is gonna continue to decrease as, as wage labor takes hold. And that's, that's really significant. I think that that is something that is worth emphasizing, right? Um, now there's a couple ways that we explain that though too. One is that you've got an agrarian economy that is transitioning to an industrial economy. So as you know, methods of farming become more efficient, there simply aren't as many farmers needed. And there's, you know, jobs in the city that are pulling people toward these urban centers. But something else that is going on is a huge influx of, of immigrants. So immigrants from, from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, as well as from Asia, are, are just pouring into the United States during this period. So 20, 27.5 million immigrants came to the United States between 1865 and 1918. So the whole Ellis Island Statue of Liberty mythos was formed during this this time, right? You know, the Statue of Liberty, give me your 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 poor, your tired, your your huddled masses yearning to be free or whatever. So that's one factor that is really going to contribute to this shift towards wage labor. Okay, so we're still talking about I'm still I still want to kind of give you context for what work looks like during the Gilded Age. Okay, so this era is also known as the technological revolution. And that's because railroads or you know, railroad track is being built that this is this is a new technology for transportation. Telegrams are, are going to start popping up, and people are going to be in, instantly be able to communicate with you know across huge distances, very significant stuff. Um, and industry is developing new technologies. So something to something I want to point out is that these technologies are very selectively being deployed, and in fact. You know, really what's happening is is if if there's a technology that can make a robber baron rich, that's going to be deployed. If it's going to keep a lowly, um, you know, Chinese laborer on the on the railroad safe, that technology is not going to be deployed. Right. Um, so on the one. So on the one hand, you have this kind of glorified version of this era where it's like, oh my God, all these, all these technological changes, isn't this so wonderful? This is revolutionizing, you know, this is, this is changing how we think about time and space. And that's the kind of sales pitch. But at the same time, to give you an example, so the railroads during this time, on a train, you have multiple railroad cars and you join them together and that's called coupling. And the technology was developed so that automatic coupling, which which is you know now commonplace, automatic coupling was was developed during this time period. But railroad companies were not you know too bothered about implementing. You know it was costly to install automatic couplers on these railroad trains when you can just have a guy do it, right? So a lot of the 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 coupling of these railroad tra train cars which are often moving as, as you're coupling them, 
um, you know, you got a guy out there, people are losing limbs, people are being pulled under the train and dying. This is a very dangerous job, but hey, who cares, right? We can save money if we don't upgrade to automatic couplers. Technology during this period is not being used to benefit humanity. It's being used to control labor. Steel production is is developing all of these new technologies which remove the skill from people's positions because if you de-skill a job then you don't you have you can just get any any guy off the street to come in and you know um pour the slag off your your steel or whatever it is that you're trying to do you don't have to go to a skilled worker and you don't have to pay skilled workers wages um there's no such thing as unskilled labor but there was a big emphasis during this time on de-skilling labor so that workers become cogs in this factory system um, in the 1880s and 1890s a man named frederick taylor is going to develop this system called scientific management and th this is the kind of this is the this is the assembly line, right? This is the proto Henry Ford. Anybody can get hired and with minimal training, they can do their one little task and pass the, the, the project on to the next guy and he builds the next little step in the widget. Um, and this is, this is called Taylorism after Frederick, Frederick Taylor. The point of this is to de-skill these positions in order to pay lower wages. And in order to make it so the company isn't beholden, you know, to whatever small degree they were before to skilled artisans. Let's 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 pause there. Let's bracket that. I want to talk a little bit. Of, I want to talk a little theory at you. So Karl Marx and Capital, which, you know, on our timeline. So Capital, which was published in German in 1867, and we're not going to get an English translation until 1887, but um, Marx has this insight, which I think is, I think is very applicable. So, you know, when we, when we talk about a labor market in cap, under capitalism, there's this idea that, you know, there's, there's supply and demand and, hey, if there aren't as many workers, then demand for these jobs is going to go up and, and wages will go up like as with any other market. And Marx says that's not the case, right? Capitalists control who is in the labor market. Okay, so Marx writes, the whole form of the movement of modern industry depends upon the constant transformation of a part of the laboring population into unemployed or half-employed hands. One way that this takes place is by bringing women and children into the labor force. You know, if you want to continue to force wages down, you start giving jobs to women and children. Um, and, you know, giving jobs to women is not, is not bad. But uh, child labor is is universally frowned upon because children shouldn't risk their lives at work and should actually, you know, be learning and, and developing as as human people. 
Um, de-skilling is another. So what I what I just talked about, de-skilling is another way to um, control the 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 amount of the population that is that is employed. Other quotes. Taking them as a whole, the general movements of wages are exclusively regulated by the expansion and contraction of the Industrial Reserve Army. Relative surplus population is therefore the pivot upon which the law of demand and supply of labor works. Right. So basically, the point is, we don't have a fixed labor pool. So these laws of supply and demand, where wages would rise on their own, this is not what happens. Um, and we're going to see that in the 20th century when we get to it. Wages are not just going to rise on their own. Um, so Marx is, is spot on here. But the capitalist class has an ace up its sleeve at the same time. So if workers are able to gain some measure of control over you know, this, these laws of supply and demand, Marx says, then the capitalist class rebels against the sacred law of supply and demand and tries to check its inconvenient action by forcible means and state interference. So basically, when you start seeing uh, labor unions go on strike, then that's when you call on the National Guard. That's when you call on the Pinkertons to come bust some heads. I'm going to talk more about that in another episode, in the next episode. But basically, this is exactly what this is what we're seeing during this time period is um, de-skilling. Women and children are being pulled into the labor force. Something else is going on is immigration. So industrial capitalists have this huge new pool of labor to draw upon. Um, a lot of these people, so this is, again, this is like the melting pot idea. People are showing up from Poland and uh, Slovakia and Hungary and Finland and Italy. And people aren't, people don't speak the language. If you're going to make money off these people's labor, you kind of have to have them put into positions where you don't really have to you don't have to really spend a lot of time developing their their skills and their traits. And so what's happening is industrialists are just making, you know, horrid amounts of money while these immigrants are oftentimes living in, you know, slum conditions. This is this is the context of of what's happening, and so I mentioned right. You've got the Horatio Alger fantasy. Um, I just want to mention. So I want to I want to go back. I think this is a really powerful idea. I think is I think it's important to have a measure of respect for this idea. It's a it's a fantasy, right? But this really happens for like Joseph Carnegie, right? And he works his way to the top and becomes a, a captain of industry you know, this, this immigrant from Scotland. Um, but the, the, the shape of the whole system is that you're going to pour a bunch, you're going to pour an army of people into poverty and, you know, dangerous conditions and, uh, disease. And you're going to have people, you know, dynamiting themselves, trying to build this transcontinental railroad. 
and one out of a million is going to make, you know, become a self-made man. Not to mention that this is all occurring on stolen land. This is all, you know, being financed with capital that was made from uh, chattel slavery. So, so on the one hand, this is, this is, this is, this is delusional, right? This is completely like, this is at odds with reality. But if you're that one person, and this, and this goes back, so if we go back to 1600s British North America, North America, if you're that one guy, you start on the streets of London when you're 14 or whatever, and you get shipped off to uh, Virginia, you manage to survive, you manage to finish your indenture, and then you get your own little piece of land, you're feeling like a king, right? This is a very powerful idea for you. You made it against the odds. Frankly, this takes on religious significance. Um, Max Weber identified what he called the Protestant work ethic. The Protestant work ethic is the idea that God favors some people. And the way that you find out if you're one of God's, you know, chosen is to work really hard. And if you succeed, ta-da, you're God's favorite person, right? Um, Horatio Alger was briefly a minister before he uh, sexually assaulted two teenage boys. Um, right. So th- this is a religious idea. This is a this is a religious idea. Um, and on the other hand, you have more pragmatic, materialist means of, of trying to improve your life, which is labor unions. Uh, the Knights of Labor during the 1870s is going to become um, something new. And, the, and again, this is not, this is kind of a homegrown American thing. This is not, you know, all that influenced by, you know, Marx per se. It's influenced by people saying, hey, we want to. We want an eight-hour workday. We want fair pay. We want to end child labor. And so, during the 1870s, the the Knights of Labor stops being a secret society, and it becomes a labor union which organizes everybody in a workplace. So this is a shift from from uh, craft guilds and trade unions where you have an association of, of tailors or you have an association of, of, uh, you know, steel workers or whatever. And, and, you know, the, the, the trade union tradition is going to continue on, but the Knights of Labor are really the first ones, you know, at least in the U S who, um, say, we're going to organize everybody. We're going to organize women. We're going to organize black people and immigrants. So in 1877, there is a railroad, it's called the Great Railroad Strike. There's such an overwhelming, there's such overwhelming participation in this strike. My understanding of it, based on, based on what I know, is that it was this, there was kind of groundswell of all these workers that are, that are just pissed off and, and angry. And like, this is their outlet and a lot of them end up joining the Knights of Labor. And so by 1886, at its peak, it has 700,000 700, members. So that's huge for the time, right? So it's this big, huge force to be reckoned with. I want to talk about the ugly side of this, right? Okay, so 
on the one hand, this is, you know, a, a triumph for organized labor. Um, especially the, the kind of like the openness to, you know, organizing everybody. But the ugly side of this is the Knights of Labor. So in the mid 1800s, um, a lot of people immigrated from China into the West Coast of, of the United States. A lot of uh, Chinese labor ended up working on the railroads. And in fact, Chinese immigrants were the dominant workforce, um, approximately nine and 10 workers on the railroad, building the railroads were Chinese. Um, and the remainder were mostly Irish. So you have an immigrant workforce building the railroads. Uh, Chinese people, not many Chinese people spoke English. Um, and it was common for Chinese people to sign five-year contracts to build these railroads. Right, this is extremely dangerous work. You, you have people with, with minimal training, no safety training, and you're, you're putting them out there to, you know, move, you know, tons and tons of rock with dynamite or machinery or whatever it is, or, you know, by hand or whatever. Um, you've got people, you know, getting maimed and killed on a regular basis. Um, and in, in the instances when Chinese workers protested and, you know, d did direct action, um, in one case, uh, the, the railroad owners just starved them. They just said, okay, well, we're not going to feed you until you go back to work. Um, this is the amount of control that employers had over uh, these em this immigrant workforce that is building this this great, you know, wonder of of the United States and this this harbinger of manifest destiny, which is the transcontinental railroad. So these are, these are the people doing the hard work at tremendous cost of life and limb. And the people who are benefiting are the money, are the money people. So Jay Gould, Leland Stanford, these people are making their names off of these railroads um, in a couple of different ways, right? So the, through the exploitation of labor, but also I mentioned the Homestead Act. Um, so the first Homestead Act was passed in 1862, and a lot of a lot of people were able to, you know, get some land for next to nothing. It's not for the point of land speculation, but wealthy people had friends in Congress, for one, and the law was vague. And most of that land actually went to uh, wealthy investors. And railroad interests particularly capitalized off of this land, because if you're going to lay track, you got to have the right of way. Um, and then, because, you know, the, the railroad was a road to nowhere, the railroad titans got their money by convincing people that, you know, West, you, oh, you want to be out West, it's so great out there. This was propaganda meant to make it so you know these land speculators didn't lose their money the idea was that if you go and plow up farmland then that's going to cause a change in the climate that's going to cause more rain and then magically you're going to be able to to um you know farm without irrigation in south dakota and this doesn't happen 
so a lot of these people are making money off of the Western invasion of Native American lands. Um, you know, and this involves the the federal army coming in and fighting battles with uh, Plains Indians and, and removing them and, and slaughtering them. Um, they're making money off of uh, exploiting the Homestead Act. They're making money off of exploiting immigrant labor. And, uh, and they're making money off of lying to people and, and, and selling this idealized version of the American West. That was a bit of a tangent, but basically this is what's happening. <laughs> During the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, the white people who are organizing as, as the, the Knights of Labor, even though the ideals are that, hey, we'll organize with immigrants, anti-Chinese prejudice really grows and they begin to lobby to end Chinese immigration. So partly because of the lobbying of the Knights of Labor, the United States passes the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, which ends all immigration from China. As part of this anti-Chinese sentiment, there are you know violent pogroms committed against Chinese people, and you know particularly in the American West. So in 1885, there's a rock you know called the Rock Springs massacre, massacre, where white workers killed at least 28. Chinese people. As a result of this Chinese sentiment, the people who had already immigrated from China and remained in the United States, so people wouldn't hire them. Um, and this was this was you know in in coordination with the labor unions. People wouldn't hire them for any jobs except for service jobs such as laundry or cooking. I want to go back to um, I want to go back to this notion of Marx's Industrial Reserve Army. So in this case, the Knights of Labor, by supporting Chinese exclusion and by um, whipping up this anti-Chinese prejudice, they are doing capital's job for them. On the one hand, yes, they are you know engaged in all of these great direct actions that are challenging the power of capital. On the other hand, they're helping capital to regulate the, the, the Industrial Reserve Army. They're helping capital to regulate this um, supply and demand of the labor pool so that wages stay low for everybody. This is a mistake. I mean, this is not only wrong and, and violent. This is a tactical mistake for the Knights of Labor to support Chinese exclusion. And the way I'm thinking about this is, um, right, so there are laws, but there's also cultural norms. There's also cultural socio-political ideas about what is legitimate work and who is doing legitimate work. And capitalists can manipulate that. Capitalists can manipulate racism. They can manipulate xenophobia to make it so that you have this pool of full-time workers and on the margins you have half employed or unemployed people and at any point if you need to tap into that pool of labor you can if you know if people are, are agitating for higher wages you say oh oh well look now these people are going to now I'm going to scoop these people into the into your job and what racism does is it turns all the anger that should go towards the capitalist class towards other workers. So this is a this is a huge mistake. 
Workers are going to continue to make the stake for a le- mistake for at least the next century. And it's never going to turn out. And, and the reason why is because you're doing, when you do this kind of stuff, you're doing the capitalist class's job for them. Anyway, so now we come up to 1886, and this is a as good a, a point as any to kind of, you know, put we're going to end our history of this episode here at 1886. So what this is, is this is the high point of membership in the Knights of Labor. Again, 700,000 workers. And what's going to happen is uh, the Haymarket Affair. And this is represents a turning point where capitalists and the state, with, with the help of law enforcement, they're going to decide, okay, you have gotten away with enough. We're going to, we're going to put the hammer down. All right, so the Haymarket Affair. Um, so as part of a protest for an eight-hour workday, workers gathered, um, and police ended up killing one of the one of the strikers um, and injuring several others. And workers gathered in the next day in Haymarket Square, and somebody detonated a bomb, killed several people, several policemen. Um, police started just firing into the crowd. As a result, the state convicted eight people. And this was, this was part of, the state wanted to send a message. Um, this anti-labor sentiment, anti-anarchist sentiment is, is starting to take hold. And they sentenced eight people to death. Some of these people were not even at the incident, but they were convicted of, of helping to plan this, this bombing. Um, and four people are hanged. One person uh, kills himself, and the other three are, uh, are, are sentenced to life in prison. So there's, their death sentence is commuted to life in prison. This is seen as the time when, when you know, the capitalist, the capitalist class, right? So if we're talking about the Industrial Reserve Army, they're, they're using these different levers. They're using these levers to control the surplus population and the working population. And labor starts to get a foothold. And they start to be able to call the shots. And then, yeah, so then the, the capitalist class, you know, as, as, as Marx predicted, they start to use the state and they start to use violence to, to put a check on these labor actions. And the result does, in fact, have a chilling effect on Knights of Labor membership. Um, so next time, we're going to pick it up from there. We're going to talk about the labor organizing that's, that happens um, around the turn of the century. We're going to talk about the labor repression that happens as in an attempt to stop or at least hinder this rampant union organizing. And that's going to set us up for the New Deal. Um, And then we're going to talk about that, you know, two episodes for now. Anyway, thanks for joining. Um, Shout out to my dog, Lou. All right. I hope you enjoyed this and I hope you come back for the next episode. Okay. Bye.